1: Hello! Welcome along. It's the part of the week where we take a humongous tour around the universe. We discover all the science secrets lurking inside. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for being there, for finding, for following, and for listening to us and joining in on this journey to search out everything sciencey that's lurking anywhere. We will cover the whole thing. This week, we'll try and actually get the answer to every hard question ever. Do you ever stay up at night and you've got different questions running around your brain? Why does this happen this way? Why does this do this? Why does that do that? We'll try and sort it all out by chatting to the author Isabel Thomas, who's got a brand new book out. It's the bedtime book of impossible questions explains exactly what it does, and she'll tell us more. How heavy is the Earth, and how on Earth would you weigh the Earth?
2: So, obviously it's impossible to pop the entire Earth onto a pair of scales. That's the impossible part of this impossible question. But scientists have had a go at working out the answer to this, almost weighing the planet using...
1: And we'll check in with Amy's Aviation. Amy is an aeroplane genius. She knows everything about what gets them up and what keeps them in the sky. This week, it's all about how they power planes with propellers.
3: This plane's about to get going. The pilot is turning the ignition. The engine...
1: And I've got your questions, as always. This week, they are on plants that grow underwater. And what would happen if we went to the biggest planet in the solar system? You can find out in a bit. It's this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with this week's Science in the News. A scientist has found that 53 sea creatures that they thought were silent can actually talk. Not properly talk but they communicate with each other they can make sounds gabrielle george wish cohen used microphones to record sea species like turtles and found out they talk to each other they tell their friends when they want to mate or to hatch where they want to move i love the fact that these creatures have been around for ages and so have humans we know a lot about them and we're still discovering something brand new brilliant work to gabrielle doing these experiments well done Also, scientists in Ecuador have discovered six new species of frog! They were found in the Andes, the mountain range there, uh, in 20 kilometers of deforested areas. Now, they're rain frogs, and because there's not many, and they've not really got a home, they go onto the red list of threatened species. This is good and bad. We were talking about always discovering new things. It doesn't matter if that's whether turtles can talk or whether there are new frogs, but it's bad news that we've discovered this new species but we're almost losing them because they've got nowhere to live. And finally this week, a satellite made in London has been launched into space. The company OneWeb made them. They've blasted off on the LVM3 rocket from India, which means there are now 462 satellites of these ones in the orbit. It's 70% of the way to getting global broadband, internet anywhere in the world with the first web satellite constellation. Imagine that. You could be anywhere. You can be down your street. You could be in the jungles. You could be on the desert. You can get your phone out and get internet what a brilliant idea well done for getting these satellites in the air let's get another episode from our brilliant hallux's hydration help desk series which is as fun to listen to as it is to say if i'm honest professor hallux is a genius right he knows everything about what's going on inside your body we've looked at how your heart works how your lungs work how your muscles work your arms your legs for the last few weeks we've been looking at water why water is so important why it keeps you hydrated. This week, though, Professor Hallux tells us why some water isn't always good. Hallux's hydration help desk. Call accepted.
4: Hello Professor. Should I take a drink of water from a stream, like you see people doing in films when they're out in the countryside?
5: Well it sounds like a lovely thing to do on a hot day but not all water is clean and drinking dirty water is a quick way to get very poorly. Whilst water in streams, ponds and lakes might look refreshing it's rarely as fresh as it looks. It will contain many microorganisms like algae and bacteria which can give you a very upset tummy. Sometimes there's a water fountain at the park that can be appealing if you've been running around getting hot. The water is usually clean enough to drink but don't put your mouth on the spout or you'll be passing germs around. You might accidentally gulp a mouthful of water when swimming but it's definitely best not to regularly swallow swimming pool water although it won't do you much harm. There may be hair or skin flakes or even worse from all those swimmers' bodies. Yuck. Your garden hose is also out of bounds I'm afraid. The plastic parts are made of chemicals that can be harmful. Oh, looks like a storm. Now rainwater makes up a large part of our water supply. And if you have a weather station in your garden, you might find a glass full of water sitting in the rainfall gauge. It probably looks lovely and clean. So what's wrong with
4: taking a swig? Nanobot, can you help? The trouble is that the container that the glass is in might not be clean. And as rain falls, it can pick up pollution particles from the air. The same goes for snow. Oh, it can be great fun to catch snowflakes on your tongue, and mountaineers often use snow as a source of water. Fresh snow is often very clean, but again, it can get contaminated from the air through which it fell, or from things like the roads nearby.
5: So, whilst drinking rain and eating snow isn't likely to make you poorly, it's always better to use the taps in your house to pour yourself a drink. Care to pour us out a fun fact, Nanobot?
4: Scientists don't know exactly where all the water on Earth came from. Some think it's always been here. Others think that it came from outer space. Or more specifically, the Kuiper Belt... Billions of years ago, this region of the solar system sent enormous icy asteroids and comets crashing into planets. And in doing so, left icy deposits, which became oceans.
5: Maybe we should call water comet juice. Might make it more fun to drink.
1: Let's get to your questions then. If you've got something science-y that you want answered on this show, so easy to let me know... Just get out a phone or tablet. Maybe you can borrow your mums or dads. You need to use the free Fun Kids app. And it's free. Free, so they shouldn't mind. Record a voice message on there. It'll come through to me and I will look up that answer for you. Let's see who's first this week.
0: Hello, my name's Ollie. I'm 10 years old. And I would like to know what would happen if everything living on Earth didn't live on Earth. And it's started living on Jupiter.
1: Ollie, that's such a brilliant question. What would happen if everything on Earth went to Jupiter? Well, Jupiter is the biggest planet in the solar system. Uh, It's almost 87,000 miles across, uh, which is nearly 11 Earths. But surely, I mean, that's a lot of space. Couldn't everything on Earth fit onto Jupiter and have lots of room because it's so massive? Can't you make houses with huge gardens? Well, not really. You see, Jupiter is a gas giant which means there's nothing solid on it. There are no rocks to land on, no soil, no mud for plants to sink into. It's just a big ball of gas. The problem is you can't go inside it either. You can't go through. There's so much gas in there. It's at such a strong high pressure. And it's so hot that everything close to it would be crushed, would be melted and vaporized. So what would happen if everything living on Earth moved to Jupiter? Well, everything would be toast, Ollie. Literally burned and crushed to toast. Thank you for the question. Let's see who else we've got this week.
4: How do plants grow underwater?
1: Ava, thank you so much for sending in this question. Well, to live, plants need a few things. They need water, they need light, and they need carbon dioxide. Oh, there's lots of water in the sea, so that's a tick. There's some carbon dioxide in there too. And they've evolved special ways of getting it, so that's a check. Now, plants need sunlight. And they can get it up to a certain depth. Around 600 feet down, that sunlight can still break through the ocean. And plants, through their lifetime, have evolved different ways of getting everything they need, the water, the light, and the carbon dioxide, of getting it into their system so they can grow even underwater. Ava, thank you for the question. If there is something science you want answered on the show this week, leave it as a uh, voice note for me on the Free Fun Kids app.
0: happy reading.
1: It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week we're chatting about a book that I promise is full of answers to questions that you're always wondering. Maybe stuff that keeps you up at night. We are chatting to Isabel Thomas, who is the author of the bedtime book of impossible questions, which is a grand title. Can Isabel live up to that? Isabel, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to dive straight into it, if that's okay. What is
2: scatole? Scatole is a very strange smell that we often smell all around us without even knowing. So in this book, I wanted to ask this amazing question that children had asked. What is the world's worst smell? And of course, a lot of children are immediately going to think, poop. (laughs) So (laughs) I investigated the science of what makes poop smell and found out that a lot of it's down to a substance called scatol, which is kind of found in all different types of poop. But interestingly, it's quite similar to some smells that we really, really like, like vanilla. So it's a very interesting one scientifically to investigate. And the world's worst smell might be more unexpected than you think.
1: How much do you know about why it exists. So it, it it's in poo um, and, and many, many other things. If it stinks so massively, why does it need to be there in the first place? Did you find that out?
2: Well, most creatures sort of want to stay away from poop. Um, you can imagine why it might be lots of bacteria and nasties in it and no animal, we hope, wants to eat its own poop. But then there are quite a lot of creatures that are attracted to poop because they can lay their eggs in it. So flies immediately come to mind. Also lots of um, creatures like dung beetles, for example, that rely on collecting poop and laying their eggs in poop. So there are the whole ecosystems that kind of Um, build up around even a big pile of steaming elephant dung, for example. So some plants have very cleverly kind of capitalized on this by making their flowers smell a bit like this scatol smell in poop so that they too can attract different insects, which will in turn turn into pollinators. (sighs) How amazing is it
1: that this is all working around us? So, this book is the Bedtime Book of Impossible Questions, and it is full of things that we want to know the answer to. How did you get these questions, and how did you then go about deciding which ones to answer and researching them?
2: Well, I'm a science writer, and I've written a lot of different books. So, I come across questions asked by scientists all the time. They can be sensible questions like why is the sky blue? or sometimes silly questions. Scientists even have a prize every year for the silliest questions asked and answered by scientists. It's called the Ig Nobel Prizes. They have brilliant questions like, why are cats liquid or solid? But most of the questions in this book actually come from people who are even better than scientists at asking silly or impossible questions, and those are children. And I come across hundreds of questions from children every year, both in my work as a journalist and a science writer, and also as an author going into schools and running assemblies and saying to children, you know, ask me whatever you want. If you've got a question at the top of your brain, just that no one's been able to give you a proper answer for, just ask me. And also, of course, for my own children. um, And I've noticed that at bedtime, my own children have minds absolutely swimming with curious questions and maybe it's partly because they want to delay the lights going out which is understandable but also I think as we start to fall asleep as we wind down from the day our brains get incredibly creative and start making all kinds of strange um, connections and that's when those brilliant questions sort of come to mind that will keep you there talking and discussing possible answers and just really having a kind of adventure and curiosity.
1: Let's get to some more then. Can birds fly to space?
2: Now, we're all kind of a bit jealous of birds, aren't we? We see them just sort of taking off and flying up into the air. And you think, well, you know, how high can they go? And some can go very, very high indeed. There are certain vultures, for example, that will fly high enough to peer into the windows of a jumbo jet. But... Even for birds with their amazing wings, there is a point where they can fly no further. And that's because bird flight relies on lift. And that depends on the air being available around the bird's wings. And of course, as we get higher and higher off the ground and up into space, um, the air gets thinner and thinner and eventually runs out altogether. So there is a point where birds can no longer get any higher.
1: You wonder, don't you, uh, about the the, the creature that must fly the highest of all the birds and why they're doing it what's the point if we evolve and different creatures evolve different skills normally to help them feed they're flying so high that there's not going to be anything that they can eat around them surely
2: Yeah, I mean, some birds can obviously cope with very high altitudes. They can fly very high because their migration takes them over mountains, for example. So there are geese that can fly right over the top of Everest, no problem at all. Um, And for other birds, sort of big birds of prey, they're going to rise up with the help of kind of thermal, so rising hot air. And sometimes it just seems to be that it's not exactly helping them. It's just they really enjoy it. Um, and they might sort of get higher and higher and just really kind of enjoy the sensation and the, the sort of views that it gives them over the landscape. And in a way, that kind of enjoyment of flying does help them because it does encourage them to take off in the first place and to ride those thermals and to get higher and higher above the ground where they're going to be able to spot the best prey. If you think of a vulture, for example, it's going to need to find where an animal has been killed. They don't really... um, prey on ant they don't hunt animals themselves they're going to have to find a dead animal to eat so for example you can imagine them high up above the savannah looking out for a kill site where they can go down and know they can get a meal another one
1: How heavy is the earth and how on earth would you weigh the earth?
2: So obviously it's impossible to pop the entire earth onto a pair of scales. That's the impossible part of this impossible question. But scientists have had a go at working out the answer to this, almost weighing the planet using what they do know about the weights of things um, and the rest of the universe. The first people to have a go at doing this were sort of ancient Greeks. And then around 300 years ago, Isaac Newton um, started to write about gravity and work out how weight works in the first place. And the fact that it's gravity that gives everything its weight. So, for example, if you're in outer space, you'd weigh nothing. Now, technically, Earth is floating in space or just in space. So technically, it's weightless. But... Don't put those scales away just yet, because we can calculate the Earth's mass. We can calculate the mass of every single particle that makes up our planet. Now, mass isn't exactly weight. It's just kind of measure of how much stuff the planet is made from. And it's been calculated around six quadrillion kilograms, which is obviously an enormous number. So it's been calculated that the planet weighs around six quadrillion kilograms. So it's probably a good thing that you can't fit the planet on the bathroom scales after all.
1: (laughs) you've written more than 150 books for us to read about all different types of science there's stuff about the future there's stuff about charles darwin about uh, moths i remember you came on a few years ago to tell us about uh i, I think there was one about calling the climate and there was one about foxes as well um what have you got left to write about what are you thinking might be next
2: you know that's the brilliant thing about being a science writer and a scientist you never run out of subjects so Whatever questions you manage to answer, um, whatever you're interested in, there are always going to be more questions to ask. Um, It's just absolutely impossible to find the end um, of of knowledge and the things we're interested in. So at the end of this book, I say to children, you know what? We've we've had a good go at answering questions using the scientific knowledge we have so far. Come up with some really interesting answers. But I know your brain is just going to be bubbling with new questions um and that's exactly how you get into science and science writing in the first place just let your curiosity show you which way to go follow that um and you have such a fun time
1: Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, nonsense, I never ask a question. There's surely no answer to the question that I'm asking. Uh, Let me just run you through some of the other ones that are on there. Why are plants green? Why is it easy to balance on a moving bike? Why do I like friends more than other people? Why can't we live together? How do bubbles work? How do airplanes fly? Why do animals wear clothes? (laughs) Why are puppies? There are so many in there. And all the illustrations by Aaron Cushley are fantastic. All right, it's time for Dangerous Dan, then, when we look at the most mean and cruel and brilliantly strange and brutal things in the universe. This week, we're looking at the insect world, the flying insect world, to talk about the vulture bee. In the rainforests of Costa Rica, you'll find these strange black bees flying from leaf to leaf, plant to plant, slurping on sugar like their other buzzing cousins. But the vulture bee likes to eat something different, too. You see, in your gut, right? Well, in everything's gut, even these bees, you have microbes. They are little organisms that break down food and help you get energy. The vulture bees microbes love meat. That's how they get their protein. The problem is they're tiny bees. They can't, you know, take anything down. They can't bring anything down because they're small. So they rely on carrion. They fly around and they find another creature that has been harmed and they slurp out its insides. They're like a vulture. That's the only way it can get all the nutrients it needs to survive, like a hyena, by feasting up on someone else's prey, by eating meat, by being the vulture bee, which means it goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. Last up this week, let's check in with Amy's Aviation. You know Amy, she's a genius. She loves planes and all things aviation. And for the last few weeks, she's been telling us how planes get quick how they lift up, how they take off, and how they stay in the sky. This week, it's all about propellers. Have you ever wondered what they do? Why they spin?
3: On a hot day, it's lovely to stand in front of a fan. All that nice, cool air being blown around. Ah, that's much better. I bet you didn't know that this fan's got something in common with some types of aircraft. Can you guess what? Propellers! Propellers on some aircraft and the blades of a fan work in a similar way. Although the propellers on planes aren't there to cool you down. If you're not sure what a propeller is, it's basically a number of blades joined together in the centre and they're usually on the front or the wings of an aircraft. It can be hard to see them when they're spinning, they just look like a blur. So let's slow things down and take a closer look. It all starts with the engine. This plane's about to get going. The pilot is turning the ignition. The engine mixes fuel with air and burns the fuel to release energy. The heated gas moves a piston and the piston's attached to a crankshaft. If you're not sure what a crankshaft is, it's just something mechanical that spins around. The propeller is attached to the crankshaft and as the engine runs... The propeller spins faster and faster and this makes the aircraft move forward. So how does a spinning fan get this aircraft moving? It's all to do with something called thrust. Thrust is what makes things well, go. <coughs> the wind moving past the blades creates pressure that pushes the plane forward. Propeller blades look a bit like wings and that's not a coincidence. Wings use the same science to give the aircraft lift to get off the ground. Up, up and away! Propeller The blades are often a sort of twisty shape, wider at the middle than they are at the tip. The shape is very important. Think about the last time you played on a playground roundabout. If you stand in the middle, you don't go that fast. But if you're the one pushing around the edge, you really have to run, don't you? You both go around in a circle, but the one pushing has to go further and run faster. Much harder work! The centre of the propeller travels less quickly than the tips, so it has to be larger to catch more air. The cool thing about propellers is that they're a massive part of aircraft history, from the very earliest planes. The Wright brothers were famous aircraft inventors who were amongst the first to build planes that could take to the air and stay there. Whilst their planes might look quite old-fashioned, the propellers they used didn't look that different to the ones you find on aircraft today. Now, they didn't have all the modern materials that we have and they couldn't use too much metal in their aircraft, it was just too heavy. So, any idea what they made the propellers out of? That's right, wood! The propellers would have been carved from single pieces of hard wood like mahogany, walnut or black cherry. They were often very long, up to eight feet. As time went on, propellers became more likely to be made of metal in the Second World War, all the famous aircraft had propellers, and the sound of propellers humming became as well known as the aircraft themselves. That's Spitfire! One of the most famous planes of all time! These days, most smaller aircraft use propellers, but planes that carry loads of passengers or fast military aircraft are likely to have jet engines. They're a lot more powerful! propellers are so handy you find similar things in all sorts of places on boats, airships and even on fans that keep you cool (coughs) time for me to fly, see you soon and chucks away
1: We'll have more from Amy's Aviation taking to the skies next week on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got a science question that you want answered on this show, leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app. Uh, If you've enjoyed the episodes that we've had within the podcast, we've had Professor Haddock's Amy's Aviation. We've got tons more uh, on Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts it's all there and fun kids we are children's radio station from the uk listen all over the country on your dab digital radio on the free fun kids app and at funkidslive.com